This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Susan Allot, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so Susan's in London and it's 7am over there, so lucky she's an early bird. And, of course, it's still COVID time, so we're doing this via Zoom. Now tell me, what's happening over there? Are you still in lockdown? We are in a kind of slightly relaxed version of lockdown, which we're all slightly confused by. Yeah, it's it's feeling like life is never quite going to be normal again. We've, we've kind of lost that reference point of what, what normal is, I think, but we're we're just carrying on with social distancing. Some shops are open, no pubs or bars or, or restaurants or cinemas are open. So is, is that different to Australia? It feels like Australia perhaps had a looser lockdown than us. We are. I guess we're a little bit further ahead. It's been gradual, but we had uh, like a plus two scenario where you could have interact with two people in your home and then it was plus Ooh. five. I hear that it's it's now plus 10, um, but it's only been two or three weeks. So we don't know the impact that that's had. So everybody's watching it closely. However, I did have a moment the other morning when I woke up very early to go to Pilates and I noticed all the traffic is back, you know, the streets are, because schools are back. And I thought, actually, maybe nothing has changed. Right. Yeah, the traffic the traffic is starting to come back here as well and I feel quite sad about it. Yeah, yeah. It's I been it's been so nice to have the quiet and the clean air. Yeah. That um I, I think, you know, a lot of us are thinking, can we possibly hold on to some of this? Do you know, um, um, thinking of um, uh, climate change, one of the things that was astounding for me in the first two weeks of isolation was how we can reverse it. You know, because you always wondered whether it could happen. I mean, I believe that something could happen, but I couldn't visualise it to the extent that it did. I mean, a friend of mine lives in Kuala Lumpur and they were isolated in their apartment with no balcony and, you know, but they were near a park. And he saw the animals animals come back and reclaim the park and that made me so happy yeah I know yeah I mean if anything we've proven that we can do it like you say we can we've proven that large-scale societal change is possible yeah and actually the the scale of change that we would need in order to have an impact on climate change is nothing compared to what we've done to tackle COVID. Yeah. And that saddened me the other day, walking up the street, walking to Pilates, thinking, you know, I guess I wanted some change. I wanted something to come out of it. And, you know, we're not completely free of it yet, of course, but it just seems to me that maybe we're just going to go down the same path again. And that's depressing. It is. Mm, yeah, I know. Mm. Now, tell me how you came about to writing, because you live in London now, but you have lived in Sydney. So let's start from where you grew up. Ah, okay. Well, I grew up on the south coast of England in a sort of small town next to a slightly larger town called Bournemouth. So 
it was I guess a, a nice place to be a young kid because you had the beach and you also had the new forest quite nearby but as soon as you get to be a teenager you start thinking I have to get out of here <laughs> so I went to a uh, big city I went north to go to university I went to Leeds mm-hmm. um, but yeah I grew up I grew up in a kind of nice seaside town and then when you got to Leeds I mean when was it did you start thinking about being a writer Oh, I think I think kind of always. I can't remember a time when that wasn't something that I wanted to do. It, it might have been, you know, primary school when a teacher told me that my writing was good or something like that. But I remember always having that sense of myself as a writer from a, from a very young age. But was there anybody kind of... particular that, that you love reading that you thought I want to be that writer? As a kid? Yeah. I really loved all the Judy Blooms. I don't know if I necessarily thought I wanted to be that writer, but I always loved the kind of writing that that's con- that feels contemporary and relevant, and uh, you know, kind of realistic to 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 your own life. I was never a kid who liked the magic or fantasy or sci-fi. It was always that kind of people who I could identify with that I loved. I don't think I really, really found the writers who inspired me until I probably got into my 20s that, that I started reading up writers like Kate Atkinson. Do you know, you I've know, met and, her. I've had lunch with yeah. her. She's remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I loved about her was how nonchalant she was, you know. Uh, okay. Yeah. Writing just came and, you know, she, was, <laughs> she made it all look easy because I've spoken to so many writers over the years, so many authors, but she was different in a way that she made it all seem very ordinary, I thought, in That's a good way. Yeah. Casey's yeah. one of my favourite books. But the book that I think I've reread the most and that had the biggest impact on me is um, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, her yeah. debut. Yeah. Um, it won the what was then called the Whitbread, didn't it? Um, mm. Now called the Costa, and I just remember thinking, well, maybe someone like me could write a book like that. You know, she made it feel possible. So yeah, she had a, a big impact. I also really love Maggie O'Farrell. I can see Hamlet on your bed behind you. <laughs> I'm dying to read that. <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but it's on my pile, as you can see. Again, I had lunch with Maggie. Um, Did you? What was her first book after you'd gone? Was that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, I love and that. I oh, yeah. so did I. And the publishers brought her to Sydney, and I was just in total awe of her. She's she's lovely. I've seen her speaking. I've, I've been to readings. She seems great. There's a similarity in who you're liking, isn't there? I guess so. Kind of accessible literary fiction with mm. great characters. Yeah, and a depth of story, a bit like your own yeah. book, right? Thank you. That's a big compliment. <laughs> so, what did you study at Leeds? I studied English literature. I remember asking a family friend who was an actually an English literature lecturer for the Open University, what do you do if you want to be a writer? What course should you study at university? And he said, he kind of misunderstood me and thought I meant that I wanted to be a journalist, I think, and said, you know, study English or do a journalism course. And I said, no, no, I want to be a, an author. And at the time, they kind of weren't, or as far as I knew and he knew, there weren't any creative writing courses mm-hmm. at degree level. He, he said, um, study English and then write creatively in your in your spare time (laughs) so I studied English and I did not do any creative writing in my (laughs) spare time I think um English can be quite um intimidating sometimes if you want to be a writer it certainly was for me 
I, I became, you know, scared of the ambition to be a writer, started thinking that perhaps it wasn't ever going to happen. Yeah, so so my time at Leeds was spent reading other people's books and, and wondering if it would ever happen to me and thinking perhaps not and feeling quite upset about that, really. Even though you weren't putting pen to paper or you were? I wasn't. I wasn't, no. no. I think I, I reached a point where I was scared to try in case I found that I couldn't do it. Yeah, I can imagine that would be overwhelming. Okay, so then what got you to Australia? Because I know you've lived here. I went to Australia because I was in a relationship with a guy who was, um, when I met him, who was already planning to go. And initially I said, well, you know, I'm really happy in London. I've got a job and a flat and friends and I've, I don't really feel like it's the time for me to go travelling or to leave the country in a kind of possibly permanent way and then by the time he was actually going I, I'd kind of it's not so much that he talked me into it it's more that I'd come to the idea that I didn't want the relationship to end and so I went for love and I think that part of the reason why it didn't work out was that it just I wasn't there on my own terms and I didn't feel the same way about being there as he did and so some of that you'll probably be realizing has found its way into the book um, um, where did you come to Sydney we lived in Glebe oh right that's where I grew up really I really liked Glebe at the time I don't know what it's like now but it had some really cool restaurants and remember a really nice bookshop actually it's still there Glebe books yeah that's good I thought it was a funny experience because I looked around me and I could see that Sydney was great and that there were lots of things to love about it but I didn't love it and I've said elsewhere I felt like that was a failure on my part and I came home on a wave of homesickness feeling like I just you know I couldn't um, make it work out there yeah and I still don't don't know if I fully understand what what went wrong except that like I said it I wasn't quite there on my own terms. How long were you here? That was just shy of two years I think Mm. although I did some traveling on the way there and on the way back I went through Thailand as you do. Mm, As you do. I got I got um, back to London and almost immediately, you know, the plane landed on the tarmac at Heathrow and I thought, what have I done? Why am I back here? It's raining. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all of that homesickness just fell away and I thought, what's wrong with me? And kind of just chalked it up to experience and thought, oh, well, that didn't work out. And then it was almost like the universe um, threw me a curveball in the form of an Aussie guy who I went and and fell for and eventually married. Who you met in London? I met in London, yeah. We were both living in London at the time. Yeah. And because of him, my relationship with Australia has continued and I've been back there several times with him. Liked it more each time I've gone back. And is he from Sydney? He's from Wollongong. Right. So I'm often intrigued by writers and but I often wonder how whether you think Australian if you like or whether you think English what is it when you go to sleep what do you dream of I remember talking to an Australian writer in in LA and I said do you dream in Australian or do you dream in American if you know what I mean and she said definitely Australian and I was talking to Peter Carey the other day Um, he was in New York and I was here and we were having a conversation about story time in isolation and he sees himself very much as still Australian even though he's lived in New York for that long and Almost all of his books are still set in Australia. So you decided to go both ways, didn't you? Talk to me about that. Ah, yes. Well, initially I thought my book was going to be set at least partly in England. And I thought that Louisa, the British woman who um, 
is, is still quite central to the book. I thought she was going to be my protagonist. And I thought that the book was about a British woman living in Sydney who experiences overwhelming homesickness that fractures her relationship and, and she dramatically leaves and, and comes back to England. I thought that, that was my story for, for quite a long time. But these Australian characters and the, the setting of Sydney gradually started to take over. <laughs> and people who read early drafts of the book repeatedly said to me, this is where your story is. These are the chapters that are alive, fresh and um, vivid and interesting. You know, you need, you need to cut Louisa back. And it took me quite a long time to accept that. But yeah, it eventually became a book set almost entirely in Australia. And instead of being a book about leaving Australia and coming home, it became a book about going back to Australia, yeah. which is interesting, isn't it? This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The book is called The Silence. It is your debut. It's, it's your first fiction novel, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So how did you come to write it? Like, had, when did you decide that you could start writing? I um, started writing quite soon after I got back from Australia. And I would think I was maybe in my late 20s at that point. I just felt like I can't put this off anymore. And I did a, a correspondence course, a creative writing course, this is in the olden days where we did it by physically putting something in the post to a tutor and she would mark it up and post it back to me. <laughs> I used to love it when those manuscripts landed on the mat and I would read what she'd written about them. So, yeah, I started writing then. And one of the um, assignments was a short story. And I wrote about a girl called Isla and um, she was watching her mum pack a suitcase. She didn't know where her mum was going. Her mum was called Louisa. And she didn't know if her mum was going to take her with her wherever she was going. And um, my tutor said it was great, well written. You might want to try and develop it into something longer, maybe give it a bit of a sense of place. So I started tentatively trying to develop that into a novel. But it wasn't until I met the Aussie guy who went, who, you know, I ended up marrying him um, that I decided this is about a woman leaving Australia. This is going to be where it's set. I need to explore that setting and, and what happened uh, and turn that into something. I speak to many, many writers and everybody has a different style of how they come to writing. I mean, I've heard that many stories. But do you think that sometimes, I mean, you had wanted to be a writer but it, the story hadn't come to you yet, whereas I think some people want to write and they will find the story. Tell me what happened with you. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. I had this sense of myself as a writer but I didn't know what to write about. 
and I think that maybe I was slightly frozen in in fright at, at that for a long time and I eventually just started writing anyway and I started with a place and with some characters and I waited and I, I wrote and wrote and wrote until a story appeared. It took quite a long time. <laughs> and then eventually, I think it must be some kind of muscle that you exercise and it strengthens and writing begets writing and you start to get better at it and the ideas come. Um, but I'd probably just been kind of sitting down and trying to write for several months before the story took shape. Yeah. Would you say that, yes, it's you've been writing it over a long time, but how long do you think when you sat down and thought, this is it, I'm going to do it, here's my book, how long do you think that period was? It's really hard to answer, but I've started saying when people ask me that, I've started yeah. saying seven years. Wow. Okay. It's still a <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because um, I know that um, for my 40th birthday, my husband kindly bought me um, a retreat um, is called the Arvin Centre in the UK. They do these kind of retreats where you go into the darkest countryside for a week with no Wi-Fi. And, um, you know, it was a tutored retreat. And by the end of that retreat, I felt like I can do this. It was really had a big impact on me that week. So I started it then. It coincided with my youngest child starting primary school, which meant I had a bit of time in the day. I was working part time and I had a, a couple of days where I could clear time to write. And so I spent about a year on a first draft at the end of that year I had a first draft I thought it was finished then I thought I'd written a novel and that was that um, yeah. <laughs> turned out not to be <laughs> yes, no I think that very rarely happens right yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh it has been compared to Jane Harper which is a huge comparison I guess and and, and a great accolade how do you feel about that god I'm so grateful to her because I mean, I, I had written several drafts of The Silence before the the dry came out. So I don't feel that it was an influence as such. But she really paved the way for Australian crime writing internationally. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful comparison. It is. I'm delighted yeah. by that. I feel that um, there's been so many women writing crime, Kathy Reichs um, and a lot of UK authors. But for Australia, it, it really, it took a while, not just female crime, but I think male crime as well. We were, for some reason, um, do you know, I think it was because we were trying to write in other places that crime really? writing. Yeah, I think that's what happened. And then Jane Harper really kind of anchored it here and, yeah. you know, in this sparse land that we have, you know, crimes I mean, happen. Yeah, it's a perfect setting for a crime novel. It's yeah. so atmospheric. Um, so, yeah, she did an amazing job of, of building the landscape into the plot and making it very much rooted in Australia. Yeah, And I, I know that when I was talking to US editors about the silence, they were saying, you know, absolutely, there's a there's a huge appetite now for, for crime and writing set in Australia. So mm. I think that we have Jane Harper to thank. We do. Um, how did you get published? Ah, so I found an agent and worked with her for about a year. We went through a few drafts together. She, Nicola Barr from the Bent Agency, she's really good at working editorially with her clients and so and that must have helped because we sent the book out on submission as part of the London Book Fair it was January must have been January 2019 
and within 24 hours we had interest from Borough Press which is an imprint of HarperCollins. She you know had set my expectations that we might not hear for a couple of weeks so I was unprepared for the for the um, email saying you know there's a senior commissioning editor who's saying she loves it. So that was amazing and then another publisher chipped in and said that she was interested too so it ended up going to a little bit of a tussle which was really exciting and I didn't sleep for a week <laughs> uh, <laughs> but HarperCollins won that so yeah it was wow. amazing. It is amazing <laughs> and you would know more than most that you know there are lots of stories where that doesn't happen. You spend seven years writing a book or 10 years writing a book or three years and getting published is not easy. Oh, I know. I mean, this, this is it. I think when you've spent so long working on something, especially when it's, you know, if you if you work that hard on something, it's had an impact on the whole of your life. You know, you, you make decisions in your life that allow you to keep writing. So my career might have taken a different path if I hadn't have wanted to always have the time and the headspace to, to keep writing. Um, you know, I took time out of family life so that I could keep writing. And so when it's out on submission, the stakes are so high it's almost unbearable and you know you, you think to yourself what will I do if this doesn't sell if it doesn't work out will I abandon it and try to have a career change that that gives me the satisfaction that writing gives me if that's at all possible mm. or will I pick myself up and write another one mm. will you write another one yeah I'm, I'm in the middle of writing another one at the moment yeah. Hey, I um, probably shouldn't tell you this, but um, <laughs> I spoke to Lee Child sometime last year, I think, because I, I just love Jack Reacher. And so I was in total awe of him. And it was mm-hmm. back in the days where I could sit in a room with him and, and record a podcast. But he said, I mean, I, I can't remember how many books he's written now, but well over 20, right? And he mm. said that every single time he sits down to write, it's like for the first time. It is so hard. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely true. You don't you don't learn how to write a novel. Um, it's completely different this time around. And I'm, I definitely still feel like I'm learning as I go along. It's a very humbling experience. And I think it's, it's probably helpful to write from a place of humility. You know, the, I think Zadie Smith said, the day that you sit down and think, I can do this, this is easy, is the day that you're finished. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly not finding it easy. <laughs> especially in lockdown, to be honest, it's also distracting. There was um, lots of conversations. I saw memes and cartoons and all sorts of things implying that after lockdown, you know, there's going to be a plethora of manuscripts out there or plethora of stories. But so many people that I've spoken to just couldn't find the inspiration to do anything because we were living a life that we weren't used to. You can be a writer and you can be isolated, but that's by choice. Yeah. No, it's it's difficult when reality is stranger than fiction to feel that your fiction is interesting and relevant enough to pursue I think that might be part of the problem also um, I think if you're a writer and you're also a parent you aren't isolated you've you've got a house full of people you know I've never been less isolated (laughs) Um, and that's quite difficult too it's it's been really difficult to find a routine and um, you know having to be quite strict with time management and having to, you know, I'm, I'm lucky my children are at a secondary school age. They don't they don't need me to homeschool them, really. In fact, they don't want me to. <laughs> but they do occasionally want food and that kind of thing. So all of that has been really, really challenging. And I've definitely lost momentum um, with the book. 
I'm writing, but you know, it's, it's, I'm getting there. It's starting to feel a bit like, okay, this is what normal feels like for now. And I'm just having to, I've got an app on my phone, which switches off all my social media and I sit there for 40 minutes, I give myself. And if I can get 40 minutes of undisturbed writing in, then I feel like I've had a successful day. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Susan. It's Can I just say, too, I adore the cover, the Australian cover. I don't know if that's the yeah. same cover in the UK or the US, but it's really striking. Oh, good. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's called The Silence. It really is a compelling, well-written, and congratulations. I think you're going to do very well with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.